welcome to the war room right right here doing it a little bit different today we have our well it used to be monthly chat with mark Rosano, but now it's like every other month um but i normally have an introduction where i talk about a sponsor a guest etc but listen this month i work for this man and he said ryan if you don't let us sponsor this podcast you're fired and so <laughs> <laughs> he scared me he's an intimidating guy he's played rugby um i've rode with him in a car that's even scarier so <laughs> Mark, I, I, the, the homeless guy came out of nowhere. It wasn't just me that was trying to go around him. Come on now. There was really multiple did. cars. We were the third car. I, I just followed where the, everyone else was going. The homeless guy really did come out of nowhere. We're driving down, I don't know, some boulevard in California. 407, I think it was. 407, I think it was 407. maybe. I don't know. And um, <laughs> These cars, it's what, 8 o'clock at night. It's it's yeah. pretty dark, and so, but it's it's a it's a, you know it's uh, the roadway's lit, so you can see there's you know um, stuff everywhere. Anyways, and there's three or four cars in front of us that are just all of a sudden swerving like something's in the road, and but it's like a tight swerve, and so <laughs> we get up to it, and Mark just swerves around it. There was a homeless man in the middle of the road. People were going sixty miles an hour. <laughs> it was. It was crazy. So that was yeah. something. That was something for sure. <laughs> I don't know what that was. That was something. But we didn't even break conversation, no. which was which is even better about the whole we thing. We were so locked in, and you she swerved. We got to the apartment that night. I was like, "Did we almost hit a man?" Like it felt like we almost hit a man. Like what? <laughs> what happened here? Because the answer is yes. That that did almost happen. <laughs> we went eight. Then we yeah. You know, it was yeah. We were locked in. But what were we locked in about, Mark? That's the thing. And let's tell the people what we have going on. Sure. So we have the uh, the uh, a private equity fund where we're purchasing energy infrastructure projects. So we're looking at it from uh, hydroelectric dams uh, is one of the uh, key focal points because we want to get involved in base load capacity. Because as we've seen constantly, that there is a shortage of base load, and you're seeing that reflect in the electricity prices. And then on the other front, as we've talked about on the show multiple times. There's also a, a, a growing food shortage as well as on the fertilizer front. And we're looking at ways of, uh, of really kind of investing in solutions that would provide not only an increase in yield, but also get away from some of the synthetic uh, fertilizers that are available, uh, available in the market today. Okay. And with that succinct summary, let's get into the podcast. So Mark Rosano, it's good to have you on for our what is now bi-monthly podcasting. And we are all over the place raising money, trying to get these deals closed. So apologies. This will be out actually in February. I think this comes out recording January 25th. So it'll be out in two weeks, I believe. But anyways, okay. Right now, obviously the story of the day is Russia, Ukraine. And so <laughs> at the time of this recording, we don't, when this comes out, people will know more about your prediction, whether it's right or not. What are you, what, what's your read on the situation? Do you think this escalates? Have we peaked? What's going on here? So I, I think it hasn't peaked yet. I, I think that we're going to continue to move assets into the region. I think uh, Russia, uh, on, on essentially what feels like a daily basis, new uh, new train uh, train loads show up with either armored equipment or some sort of personnel. I think the bigger thing is this is a we will have some sort of clash. There will be some sort of fight that that occurs. Uh, there will unfortunately be deaths on both sides. And and I think that'll kind of culminate with where things are. Now, this can go one of two ways. And, you know, I'm going to go my base case first. So the base case is that 
uh, Putin wants to stop the movement east of NATO. So we've we've seen NATO uh, add uh, add countries under the Bush administration. That became that was when we saw uh, saw uh, you know our relationship with Russia really deteriorate a, a bit further. And then when you look at that, it, it kind of paused because then you you know when you look at where things were, it was a little bit of friction back and forth, but there wasn't all that much. And then you had the Crimea uh, incident where. They came in and took a large part of, you know, I should say all of Crimea, and it was under the guise of doing some sort of military uh, exercise. But there was a lot of strategy, and it was strategic in what they did that for, but Ukraine was a different country then. And you've seen a lot of things change over that time period in terms of getting organized, in, in getting a lot of Russian influence out of Kyiv. And now you see some of these, these structure points. And, and what Russia really wants is, no more expansion of NATO, specific entities or specific systems, not in countries bordering, uh, you know, on their border. And they also want to secure their sales uh, of oil and natural gas into Europe. So I think that they're they're doing a lot of this to show that, hey, we're still on the world stage. You still have to pay attention to us. This is, you know, we're, we are a world power and we're going to look at uh, our best interests. Now, I think that is what this is in terms of stopping the spread, as well as uh, on an economic front. Now, if if we wanted to take the other hat and and look at this, we have to go back to the Budapest Memorandum, where when you have to think about where Bush Senior, when he gave his speech to the, uh, the to the Ukraine Parliament on the difference between freedom and independence, because at the time, as the USSR was was really falling apart, they wanted to create a union. Uh, amongst the satellite nations. And Russia really needed the Ukraine to be a part of that in order to enforce it, in order to keep things going, because a lot of economic throughput was actually in Ukraine, not in Russia. So when when then uh, Bush also, the U.S. also didn't want them to be an independent nation because the moment they declared independence, they would have actually been the, the third largest nuclear power. And now uh, we all know how it went. They declared uh, independence. They got their independence. And then the, the uh, USSR officially fell apart. So Putin is a student of history. And there was a lot of anger that was toward the Ukraine uh, people, Ukraine in general, for, for not coming along and, and becoming part of you know, what their brotherhood or how they viewed their brotherhood. So this could be the last piece or another piece of reinstituting the USSR and there's nothing that's going to stop him because the Russians also think as though, you know, the reason why Russia fell into such disgrace and, and such disrepair for so long. I mean, after that, you had 90, 98% of market value come out of Russia. You saw a lot of uh, problems and, and there is some of that anger towards the Ukraine. So there's, there's, there's two different sides to this. It's, is it strategic in terms of stopping the movement of military assets and economic, or is it you, you, you did this to us back in the 90s, and we're here to make sure that you not only pay, but we bring you back within the fold where you should have been from the beginning. Yeah, and, and your first point, I think, is something that gets often overlooked, especially on the U.S. perspective, is um, from the Russian side of things, it's logical for them to believe that NATO is an aggressor by how much closer we right. keep moving stuff, weapons, countries towards their border. Now, you might think that that's justified and all that, that that's fine but just from their perspective um they look at this as as we are the aggressors and that gets that gets lost a lot in the messaging here 
Mm-hmm. And and it's it's when you look at what happened during the Clinton administration, because you know nothing on the geopolitical front, nothing happens in a straight line. There's there's always, you know, this happened, and then there was some anger on that, and and it built up, and you know relationships ebb and flow. And, and when you look at where things are, and and looking at what what happened with Clinton when we were in uh, Kosovo, Bosnia, when you look at that, a lot of this expansion. We were we were uh, obviously bombing, uh, doing different bombing raids, and we were arguing back and forth on should we send in boots on the ground. And while we were going through this, all of a sudden, there was a Russian column of tanks that rolled through, which essentially answered our question where we're not going to go in. And Russia, that was them coming back onto the world stage after going through the collapse and then the rebuild. So that became that that was their response to that it was like, no, you're not putting boots on the ground. We're going to take care of this, you know, get get out of our neck of the woods. Then you, fo- you know, fast forward to when we uh, when we brought in another four nations or it was three or four nations into NATO and uh, the back end. And then in 08, you you had Russia move into Georgia. So there's there's always been kind of that tit for tat type situation. And when you look at what happened with Crimea, the sanctions that that followed, and then they found this weird kind of equilibrium. Now, it's it's again, not saying that it's an equilibrium in any means, but this is where things, you know, the stalemate has has played out. And there's a lot of pressure now, because when you look at Russia, Russia is, you know, has to has to export a large amount of their uh, energy. That is where a large part of their economic prowess comes from. You know they're selling more and more into China, but we all know that Putin doesn't really trust China, uh, China as much, or or uh, really anyone does at this point. But they they see the uh, you know Nord Stream two as a slap uh, against them, and they want to make sure that that is pushed through as well. And so there, this is just a means of I think pressuring and showing that we you know they are a military force, they are someone to be reckoned with. And they have an economic interest, not only in the region, but also continuing sales into the European continent. Okay, so Europe wants to do business with the Russians. Germany definitely wants to do business with the Russians. Why don't, why are we trying to block it? Why don't we encourage it? Let, let these two, um, you know, the European Union and the Russians do business together. Call today and say, get Nord Stream 2 online. That way Russia is more dependent on the European economy. Um, maybe that'll get them calm down. Is that a bad idea? I mean, to me, it seems like, hey, this is what everyone wants. Why are we pretending it's not? Well, it, it goes back and forth because there, there's two sides that it's one, it's it's economic. Let's let the economics play out. You know, it, it, it's always cheaper to pipe gas than it is to import it by LNG. It's something that makes a lot a, a lot of sense. It would be uh, it would help the pocketbooks of the consumer if you look at Europe in general. But then when you when you look at the distrust and and you have to look at Eastern Europe and what happened in Hungary back in it was either 07 or or 08, where in the middle of the winter, they just turned off the gas. And there was there was a lot of pushback in terms of, you know, did they pay their bills? Did they are they trying to pressure Hungary at that point? And during peak winter, all of a sudden there was no gas for heat. So I, as I was at Morgan Stanley at the time, and we had to close our office there because they, there was fit, there was physically not there was no heating available. So when you look at Hungary, Poland, they've been trying to diversify fl- uh, flows. So uh, up until I think it was 2000, uh, t- 2019, Hungary got about eighty seven percent of their uh, natural gas from 
Russia. And now that was something that they've been looking to try to diversify. Again, you're not going to get rid of it completely, but they wanted to figure out, is there a way that we can pull an LNG? Where is Poland in this? Can we use Poland as a means of, of accessing a lot of this, uh, you know, some of these LNG, the LNG regasification units. So there's, there, it goes both ways. It's, you need Russia. So we have to accept that fact. They, you know, when you look at what the, uh, what the region consumes, it's Urals, it's CPC, which is on the oil front. Then you also consume natural gas. So you're always going to have a certain amount of trade happening with Russia, but you don't want to have too much trade with Russia because you don't want them to be able to say, oh, well, I, you know, I don't agree with that policy. I'm just going to turn this spigot right here. And, uh, and once you're done freezing, you know, we'll come back to the table. So it goes back and forth. Now there's ways to mitigate against that. And they don't, they, you know, Europe does not use all of their regasification capacity. There is, uh, there is a lot of opportunity to sign LNG contracts that could be a bit more flexible to help offset some of the exposure to Nord Stream 2 and some of the gas uh, that's coming out of Russia through pipe. Oh, okay. So I hear what you're saying, but the Russians know, I mean, not the Russians, the Europeans know this. And so they know the, the danger of doing business with the Russians. Uh, and they, they're still willing to take that risk. It, what, why is that the U.S.'s business that they want to take that risk? And so I get that they want to diversify. and that, That'd be good for them. I'm not disputing any of that. But if they want to take the risk, if you live in the 70s and 80s in New York City and you called up you know, the Gambino crime family like, hey, listen, I want to do business with you. Okay, please come help me. I want to do business with you. I don't think the NYPD should be called in to help stop you from the Gambinos. That's what you called for. Well, it comes down to, especially when you look at Germany, you know, we, we are Germans military. You know, we, we are their entity from the protective front. And then we have obviously a vested interest in NATO. So it's the reason why we care is because we don't want our, you know, assets to be constricted, if you will, from the use of or the, uh, I should say, being beholden to Russia. Now, there's, there's, it's a necessary evil, you know, and, and when you look at what I think is becoming a much bigger uh, issue, which happened under the Obama administration, was that pivot to Asia, where we have cared a bit less about what is happening in Eastern Europe, and we've cared more about what is happening on the Asian front. So the the problem at this point is, which is why, again, I, I think this will be solved without a, an extensive military conflict is it's a necessary evil. Like, as you said, it's a necessary evil. You know, Russia has the gas. They need the gas. You know, Russia has the oil. They need the oil as much as they want to say the green transition, you know, whatever they, whatever they want to, they, they want to argue, they need Russia and they need an increasing amount of natural gas. Because when you look at the UK, the UK took down one of their largest uh, gas storage facilities. So there isn't enough storage. So there's a lot, there was always expected to be way more volatility in natural gas pricing. So this is just a means of, a, and a way to offset that because you'll have consistent gas coming through on the Nord Stream side. But then it comes to Crimea because that this was a key sanction that was put in place because they moved into Crimea. So if we move if we move against it, then we're essentially saying that we're okay with the fact that Russia took Crimea back into their uh, sphere of influence. Okay. 
All right. I don't know if you've heard this news, but the um, the stock market is struggling here in the U.S. I don't know if you've caught that that headline or not. I talked to a guy yesterday. Um, I caught him about some real estate stuff, and he goes, "Yeah, I don't know, man." And he goes, "I've got fifty five single family homes, um, and I, I got to do something with this this deal we're talking about." He goes, "You know." I've lost nine hundred thousand dollars since the start of the year on the stock market. Oh, <laughs> I'm, a little bit, I'm a little bit kind of distracted right now. <laughs> that that's that's a dinger. I'll I'll call that that that's a dinger. Yep. That's a bad day at the office. That's yep. a bad day at the office. Oh, that's big Warren money. Okay. <laughs> uh, the the. The problem is, and and again, like for those that watched my YouTube channel, when I go through the macroeconomic backdrop and everything, nothing is new. Like th there's nothing out there that is surprising anybody. It's just a matter of when does the market accept it? When does data matter again? And and I know a lot of people have blamed Omicron. You know, they've blamed COVID. But there are so many different things that have happened outside of COVID. There's, there's, you know, monetary policy. There's, there's fiscal policy. There's an overhang that's coming. And let's be fair: how many people can remember being in a rate rising cycle with inflation at approaching seven percent in the U.S. and and in some places, you know, clear over double digits? There is a lot of pressure out there. And people have gotten very comfortable over the last decade buying the dip. You know, just don't worry. It's always going to go up. There's the, the what has been called the Powell put or the Fed put. And, you know, the Fed will always come in and backstop you. It's like, well, how have things changed right now? It's like we, ha we have we're above full inflation, which is just deemed at. They, we're always going to uh, full employment. I mean, because when you look at employment, employment, you're always going to have people quitting their jobs. You're always going to have some layoffs. So you're never going to have unemployment at zero. You know, it's anywhere between three and 4%, depending on how they deem or just above 4%, depending on how they, they view natural unemployment, which just means that once you get to that level, you're at full employment, which we are. So now you have inflation, which in my opinion was going to slow down in January and February. And so far, that is wrong. I thought we were going to actually have some negative inflationary numbers coming out where they were actually going to slow down, maybe come in point, you know, negative 0.2% and see some of this walk back. But given where, you know, back to the housing piece where rents are, where, where, where they're taking diesel again, where they're taking gasoline again, you're seeing that get baked right back into the system and you're seeing inflation really ramp up. And I think that is the bigger pressure point and people are ignoring or or just re realizing that rate rate hikes are coming and that you're going to get quantitative tightening and i think that this is where you have to be a bit smarter about it and i said it at the end of last year you know you're always you should always be taking winners you should always manage the book but people have been so ingrained to always buy the dip but then on on their perspective they're like well where am i going to put my money right i can't put my money in savings C6 you know, I have to holdings. be invested. C six capital holdings. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Yes, please. I, I I we 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 are prepared to take to take capital. We are going to be buying things that are going to continue to grind higher, uh, in, in our opinion, from, from the electricity side. But we th there's a lot of unknowns out there. And I think it's there's a lot of air pockets because a lot of people are long, a lot of people are levered long 
which then comes into what happens with collateral, what happens with margin calls, you know, where should we look at this on a protection front? And, and I think that there is a lot of uncertainty and, and the moves and the, the volatility that we're seeing is, are things that I remember in 07, 08, where we had these crazy swings. And, and, I, and I think that there is a, a knife fight going on and it should be taken with a lot of caution. Yeah. And so how do you balance what we're going to see in the next few months? Because I put a thing out on Twitter this morning, um, you know, asking which company between energy transfer um, and enterprise was the most, it, what word this way, but it's supposed to be the most undervalued um, energy transfers like traded nine and um, 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 enterprise products is trading at uh, 23, I think. And I just realized, mm-hmm. as I'm looking at the tweet, I, I put the poll wrong. I put energy transfer <laughs> twice in the poll. So I got to fix that. Um, but that being said, if you think that energy prices are going to go up, you know, in, energy transfer at nine, uh, enterprise products at 23, those companies, and any oil and gas company that's, that's good at what they do, their value is going to go up as prices continue to climb um, if you if you believe that's what's going to happen. And so you could see this massive sell-off of the market, but then energy companies could accrete value. So, like, how do you think about buying stuff in a market like this? Do you Because you know that they're going to be overpriced at some point, too. Mm-hmm. So I, I look at this where you just pare down risk, you know, that this is where you, you're taking risk off the table because the swings are going to become very volatile and you want to be able to play both sides. You know, don't be scared. Like, I mean, yesterday I, I was able to cover some stuff at the bottom, put some more stuff back out after the rally and you have to be nimble in, in this market. And that's where it gets concerning because people have day jobs. You know, you, you can't be nimble. You're, you're not going to sit there while you're in a meeting and, and day trade. I mean, maybe you are and day trading, you know, some of these, uh, some of these high flyer names. So you really want to, uh, pare down risk and, and then, and then save that dry powder for things that you're going to have for long-term value. So out of the two that you, that you mentioned enterprise products, uh, EPD is actually one of my, uh, one of my favorites. And it's only be it's for, for two reasons. One, I I believe that we're coming into a very strong growth story on the liquids front, uh, on the propane side or LPG side. We're going to continue to be a large exporter of LPG into the market, and by them owning one third of Mont Bellevue, by them uh, owning a lot of these product pipelines as well as export capacity, I think they're well positioned to capitalize on that. Um, you know, e- ET energy transfer, you know, they, they have ethane capacity, ethylene uh, export capacity. So there, there will be a lot of benefit from that, especially given that China is now buying more ethane from us due to them bringing on additional uh, pet chem uh, facilities. I just like the Mont Bellevue, uh, the, 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 the management side of EPD. But I, I look at things where you, you can't be scared to take profits. And, and I know that it's, it's you want to let your good ones run, but you have to be tight in a market like this because things are going to run in weird directions and longer than you think they are. Mm-hmm. And you and you want to again, as we always used to say, you want to live to fight another day. So you're not managing money, you're managing right. risk. And it's all about that risk management. And until the Fed decides what it's going to do, I mean, I, I'm suspecting that they can't, you know, you have a massive sell off right now. Any substantial market rate, uh, raise of rates would create a huge sell-off so is that a good thing to think okay the fed's not going to raise rates significantly because they know they can't like we would go into like recession territory overnight 
Well, the, the problem is you have to, and, and this is where it gets, where it gets frustrating because you have to zoom out. And when you zoom out and, and you look at where we are in, in the market, you know, this is barely a blip. And I think that's where they have to look longer term and they have no choice. And now when I say that, it means that they need to really bring inflation under control because sticky inflation, not so much the, the flexible inflation, which is where, excuse me, you put gasoline prices, diesel prices, but, but sticky like healthcare costs, um, you know, rent, uh, things of cost of living it is going up on a lot of the, and these are not things that move quickly. So once they get, they get going, they really take time to come back. And you have an issue with where where the market sits that they're going to be beholden to. Now, I don't think they surprise the market. You know, so right right at this point, it's it's very clear that everyone's expecting a twenty five basis point increase. They're they're not going to disappoint. They're going to deliver a twenty five basis point increase. There's some call for for a fifty basis point, which I agree should be fifty, but it won't. And 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 it's just crazy when you think about this. Because the current rate is 25 basis points. We're talking about going from 0.25 to 0.5. And the market, like this is how how drunk we are on cheap money. And, and we need to start seeing this drain of excess liquidity to get into some form of price realization. You know, there is no price discovery. And that's what that's that's the issue that we're coming into. And I think we need to get this under control. Because if we do have another uh, recession coming up, if we do have a bigger, uh, you know, a geopolitical uh, problem that's going to require funding, we need to have some dry powder. And right now, we have nothing. Well, they can just print more. <laughs> well, but there's the law of diminishing returns. <laughs> no, I know, I know, so, I know. But, I mean, but no, but but no, it's fair because that that is an act. That is people would say, well, we we'll just print more. And if you read like, you know, uh, the MMT, that is the answer. We'll just, we'll just print more. It's like, but you can't. And, and that's, and that's what the law of diminishing returns is real. And we try to act like it isn't. And you're seeing that reverberate through the system right now. Yeah. I think one of the most concerning things I saw was last week, maybe um, there was the talk around the fed creating a a digital currency kind of ramped up again. And it's like, okay, if you think they print money now, (laughs) <laughs> this is not going to be a 21 million Bitcoin scenario. But everything about Bitcoin has got limited numbers. Um, this is going to be a print on demand, hyper demand. Like, like there, there's like, it's going to be insane. And, and, and no one really talked about, I didn't see at least um, an in-depth discussion of giving the fed the ability to have a truly digital currency where they can really just go crazy with it. Yeah, I, I don't the, the digital currency side and and again I understand that that we have fiat and we have printing, but I mean how many people actually have physical paper dollars on them at any given time outside of just a bunch of zeros that go back and forth between your credit card and your bank account? So it, and when like you look four, at digital, <laughs> what, what'd you say? I got like three. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, right. it's just, it's just funny. And then when you look at, when you look at the, uh, um, uh, what do you call COVID and you look at the pandemic, mm-hmm. I mean, how many people went to touchless, you know, where you right. just tap the credit card. So even cash that people that were holding out and were cash only, they're now adopting the credit standard. So given there is a certain amount of physical dollars in circulation, but I, you know, I, I guess how, 
we're we're much closer to a digital currency than sure. we are further away. Let's go. No, okay. Way. No. Okay. That's a fair point. What I would say is, if you look at how the currency's gone in the history of the U.S., um, it, you know, we had gold. Everything's out of gold, and they said, you know what? Uh, go ahead and trade that gold in. We we would like to have your gold that's tied to the dollar. And then they moved it away from the gold, uh, you know, off the gold center altogether. And so each of these moves is kind of, I don't say retroactive, but right, how the monetary policy has already kind of gone past that and then they implemented a policy. So to your point, a lot of the money that they're printing, you know, now is digital dollars. Right. Agreed. Um, I'm just, I would just submit to you that if you gave them a purely digital currency, um, that would just exacerbate the problem even worse than it is now, and I think it's pretty bad now. So that that would be my only concern is that oh, absolutely, it's well, worse. Well, the thing that holds that that would keep it grounded is is the calculations, and, and that's where when you look at the blockchain behind it is what keeps these digital currencies kind of you know confined into their own capacity. But it's just that I they could. They could do it. I mean, we have the computing capacity at the government level. It's not like we couldn't. It's just you would then have complete control. And I, I mean, I, I don't know if anybody's ever tried to take more than $5,000 out of your bank account, but they treat you like you're taking that to go buy, you know, go to the docks and, and buy just a plethora of drugs. I mean, they treat you like a criminal for wanting to use your actual money. And and it's this would just make, this would just round out a full-on control on if how you that money goes. dollars this year, they you know they got to file a form because yeah, they're worried yeah, about yeah. drug dealers and all this whatever stuff. Six hundred dollars. Meanwhile, I mean, they left like billions in Afghanistan. This don't get me started on that. But yeah, I went to the bank a couple of years ago. This has been before COVID, I guess. And I went to get out a couple thousand dollars, like you say, it was less than the ten. Um, and she goes, uh, the teller goes, "What are you going to do with this?" And I said, "None of your business." <laughs> and she goes. Oh, and she was caught off guard that I wouldn't answer the question. She's like, oh, um, well, a lot of people, you know, you know, there's illegal activity with, with money like this. I'm like, I said, just so, just so we're clear, if I was going to take this money and use it illegally, you're the last person I'm telling. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, and then the, you know, the people at the window kind of turned around looking out. Because, you know, they've never, they never heard someone say that. And she's like, um, uh, no, 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 no. Um, uh, what, what what I meant was is that people get scammed, and we've had people take out money in the parking lot, and uh, you know they, they they lose their money. I was like, okay, if I'm gonna get scammed, I'm gonna take the risk, but I'm not telling right. you I'm doing the money. <laughs> it was so funny because she was like, it, it goes back and forth. It's like it's my money. <laughs> yeah, go burn it for all I care, you know. Well, and that's that's the problem. It's it's your money. Like why why do we have all these restrictions? Why do we have all these uh, the and 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 I get there has to be a certain amount of protection in, in terms of making sure that you're not taking this and, and going to get, to get roasted on something, but it is your money, just like the 401k stuff. And no, don't get me wrong. It's pre-tax. I get it. You have to pay taxes if you take it out, but there shouldn't be an additional penalty. It's my money. I, I put it there and now oh. I'm going to recognize it as income because it was pre-tax. So I will pay taxes on it, but why am I getting penalized for this? And that's when you start getting into the usage of money and the control on what should be your bank account. Mark, how can they keep the stock market inflated if they don't have everyone's pre-tax <laughs> well, dollars it, in there? It's, <laughs> it's funny because I, I, know, I know we've talked about it before and, and I won't belabor the point, but when you look at, like you talked about buying homes, you know, back in the day, yeah, everyone's like, oh, well, mortgage rates were really high. It's like, yeah, but so was your savings account rate. Right. So was your money market rate. So yes, they're, they're, you, know, you were getting a mortgage for 19%. 
but you were earning 14% in the bank. You know, now your mortgage is three and a half percent and you're earning 0.0001%. So technically, yeah. I mean, are you really better off? Right. Well, no. And, and that's the thing. That is, I think, one of the silver linings of COVID is that you saw all of these retail investors um, trying to figure out how to make money on Robinhood with the meme stocks. Um, you, you, it, it made people kind of sit back and re-question why the system is the way that it is. And you come to realize that there's a lot of more problems. Uh, and I talk about this a lot, that you know, once you shut down the system and you try to start back up, you create problems. Well, when you send people home and then they start trying to figure out new ways to make money, they realize, oh, wow, there's a lot more regulations and a lot more pain in the butt. This this is not as easy as I thought it was. Right. Um, you know, they're, wait, they're, they're, they're stopping us from buying? Wait, why is that happening? You know, and so I think that might be a a silver lining to where some of these policies, you know, four or five years ago would have been, oh, it's just the way things are. Um, I think now you have a larger demographic of people who will be asking questions about why are we doing this um, moving forward. Well, and, and the cost of doing it has gotten much cheaper. I mean, back back in the day, you know, when you look at the 70s, 80s, and even 90s, I mean, I, when I started in, when I started on Wall Street, we were still using paper tickets, and this was the early 2000s. So you're, you've only, we've only seen things become cheaper, become faster. And one of the, and, and this is in, in the C6 infrastructure partners uh, uh, presentation, because, and it's just one of my favorite quotes from Powell, where he clearly states, that he's going to nuke everyone. Lower interest rates make it cheaper to borrow. They do raise asset prices, including the value of your home. But for people who are really just relying on their bank savings account earnings, you're not going to benefit from low interest rates. We feel like we have ways to further support the economy, certainly through our credit and liquidity facilities, which are effectively unlimited. So in his speech, he legitimately told you that if you don't own an asset, you're going to get torched. And, and this can be any asset. This could be if you own a home, if you own real estate, if you own stocks, because you're not going to gain anything if you own bonds. You're not going to gain anything if you keep it in savings. You know, God forbid you're trying to save up to buy a home to put down 20%. You're, it, you might as well just leave it in the uh, stock market till the day you're closing. And that's what he said. He, he essentially is, and this is just a clear promotion of getting as much money out of your savings account and into some sort of asset. Okay. All right. So we'll wrap it up with this over the next, you know, to our next recording um, in February, in February. Um, what are some things that folks should be looking for? Stock market, geopolitically, energy prices. Um, sure. Wherever you want to take it. So the, the key piece with the Russia, Ukraine side, uh, the, the pivotal point is going to be most likely the second, third week of February. Uh, the reason why that's going to be the case is because we're going to have pretty much as much uh, uh, as many assets as possible on both sides of that border that you're going to have a lot of things culminating. And the reason it, it's going to happen, have to happen at that point, uh, tanks are heavy and the ground is frozen. And the moment that ground thaws, those heavy tanks, they sink into the ground. So there's a lot of things that have to happen in a in a very tight window, which is why it's going to be such a important point over the next, let's call it the middle to end of February. What I think is a much bigger issue that is not getting the attention it deserves is what's happening in Yemen right now. And the reason why I say that is because uh, the Houthis have taken control of a key port on the western side of Yemen. And they've been able to, and that happened officially in November when they when they uh, got control. 
And this has allowed Iran to bring in more sophisticated equipment without having to smuggle it because now they can literally bring the ship right into right into port where they've been able to offload. What we've seen is missiles, drones, missiles being way more uh, sophisticated than a rocket. And we've seen now several attacks that have happened both within Saudi Arabia as well as the UAE. And I, and I think this is a much bigger component in the near term, especially when you're looking at geopolitical risk, oil uncertainty. It's really going to be what is happening on that peninsula versus what is happening in Russia and other. Now, another, uh, another and, and to wrap this up, is what's going to happen in China at this point, because there's been a lot of expectations of easing. We've seen it come through, but we're not seeing a huge amount of it. And this is what I've been talking about the most, where they were going to stop the decline of uh, credit impulses. They were they were going to stop, you know, this this really big tightening, but they weren't going to ease to the point of you know taking things to the moon again. Instead, they were going to try to flatline it and let a natural uh, and and then try to let the you know be below zero and have this natural drain coming. And I think the market is really expecting way more activity out of China on the easing front. And I think there's going to be a lot of disappointment as the rest of the world comes into more of a tightening uh, function. We've seen South Korea raise rates, the UK's raise rates, and we're right behind. And I think that there's going to be a lot of that uncertainty unfolding. All right, Mark. Well, where can people follow your work in the meantime? In the meantime, uh, you, uh, I think uh, my, my, uh, uh, at Mark FNY, uh, it's in my title there. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. We have our YouTube channel, Primary Vision Network, or you can email me. Always happy to talk by email as well at uh, mrosano at c6capitalholdings.com. All right, listeners, thank you so much. And we'll be back next week. <laughs>